Amen. Would you remain standing just for a moment? Good morning. It's great to see all of you here uh, as we celebrate the freedoms that we have in Christ, but also freedoms that were given uh, by so many who made the ultimate sacrifice for us to worship today uh, in spirit and in truth. And so um, in light of that, we'll give attention to our passage as we continue our study of the book of James. And today we're in James chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. This is the word of God to each of you today. James writes, don't speak evil against each other. Dear brothers and sisters, if you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? God's word to you today. You can be seated. Thank you. How many of you remember your middle school lunchroom? How many of you remember your middle school lunchroom? Some of you are in middle school right now. How many of you remember your middle school lunchroom? I know we have some principals and middle school teachers in the room. Okay. How many of you, if you can remember, if you haven't blocked it out completely, how many of you would go back to middle school, a couple people, and go back to your lunchroom table in middle school? Okay, not many people would do that. The middle school lunchroom is like a little microcosm of life and relationship to other people. In its awkwardness, in its collisions, what makes middle school so difficult, I used to be a student pastor and I still consider myself to be a student pastor just for older students. Um, what makes middle school so difficult is that all of us in middle school are trying to find our own story, our own identity. And then you put your own journey to find and discover your story, your identity, who you are, what you're believing about yourself. And you collide that with a bunch of other people who are trying to find their story and their identity. I actually brought a picture of myself and our executive pastor who's assigned at Matthews right now, Gabe Smith, in middle school. Go Braves, this is me on the left. And Judson Brandt, if you know Howie and Joanne Brandt who worked for SIM for years. If you know Ralph and Karen Mello, that's Aaron Mello, their son. And then on the left is our illustrious executive pastor, uh, Gabe Smith. And this is us in like eighth grade. So incredibly awkward, right? And we were sitting at a lunchroom table over and over and over again and colliding in our stories. And the truth is that that experience of being in middle school and trying to figure out who am I and how do I begin to relate to other people doesn't just stop in middle school. The middle school lunchroom table, the proverbial middle school lunchroom table continues all throughout life where we're constantly trying to figure out our story, like who are we and specifically our stories with Jesus? How do we relate to God? And then how do we relate to other people? And I wanna tell you a quick story about another lunchroom that happens in the scriptures in the New Testament with an apostle, his name was Peter, who struggled at the lunchroom. 
Uh, in, this, in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul captures a really provocative story about Peter. And Peter has gone to Antioch to visit with non-Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, people who found the Lord outside of Judaism in the first century. And the truth is that in church history, the centerpiece of the church in Jerusalem began to navigate north to Antioch. And Antioch began to be the sending church, the missional church of the New Testament as they sent out Paul and Barnabas and Silas into the, into the Gentile world to share the gospel. And so Antioch becomes the gathering place of all kinds of different ethnicities and backgrounds of people who were finding hope and life in Jesus as we all are. And Peter makes his way to Antioch and he's sitting at a lunchroom table having lunch with Christians and enjoying fellowship with all kinds of different types of people from different backgrounds. And the scripture says, according to Paul in Galatians 2, that some of James's friends, our James, who wrote the book uh, uh, that carries his name, who was the pastor in Jerusalem, some of his friends or leaders in the Jerusalem church come to Antioch. And when Peter sees these Jewish leaders come to Antioch and sit at the lunchroom table, he pulls back from his Gentile friends. He doesn't want to be seen with them. In other words, the cool kids come into the lunchroom and all of a sudden I pull back from my friends who are maybe considered outside friends. And now I just go to the cool table and I act like I don't know these people. And I want you to pay attention to this in Galatians chapter 2. Maybe just write the reference down. In Galatians 2 verses 11 through 14, Paul captures this little story as he's talking to the church in Galatia. And he says in verse 14, he says, I saw that they were not living according to the truth of the gospel. Galatians 2 14. And I want you to pay attention to this in context of our passage in James 4 because it's really important. Paul doesn't say, hey, when I saw Peter behaving badly at the middle school lunchroom table and trying to be a part of the cool kids club and, and not uh, being kind to other people, he was confused, not just in his behavior, but pay attention to the language, Galatians 2.14. He forgot the truth of the gospel. And so I reminded Peter the truth of who Jesus is. This is so informative for us because essentially what Paul was reminding us is that how we treat one another you know, at the middle school tables all around in life, how we relate to one another, how we collide with other people and their stories takes us back to the story that we're believing about God and ourselves. And so Paul doesn't say, I told Peter just to be nice. He doesn't say, I told Peter, stop being a jerk and go sit with your new friends. Nope. And this is so informative. Everyone watch this. Because Christianity at its heart Finding and following Jesus is not a behavior modification program. Now, finding and following Jesus authentically and passionately in your life should change your behavior. But on the surface, you know, the essence of what Christianity really is on the surface is not just I'm changing things out here. It's not a religious effort to just change my morality or my behavior from the outside in. Christianity is changing your heart from the inside out. Outside in is behavior modification or religiosity. I'm going to prove my worth to God or to other people, right? By the way that I'm behaving out here, but my heart is still ice cold towards other people. And so I want you to pay attention to this. Again, write the reference down, Galatians 2.14. Paul says, when I saw Peter behaving badly at the lunchroom table, 
I took him back to the true story of the gospel. I didn't say just be a nice guy or be, be kinder to your friends or, or in the context of our passage, be gentler and better with your words. No, he says, I took him back to the true story because I knew that when he understood and came back to the truth of the gospel, it of course would affect his words. Do, do you hear that? And so what James is trying to get at here in James 4, back to our passage, verses 11 through 12, when he writes about judging other people, criticizing other people, slandering other people, he's reminding us of the true story of the gospel and that the gospel, the way we orient ourselves and relate to God has everything to do with the way that we orient and relate to other people. In other words, our vertical relationship, back to this, we taught on this last week, our vertical relationship with God affects all of our horizontal relationships with other people. Our relational circles are a reflection of what we're believing about God. And the book of James, if you're just coming into our study, the book of James is known as the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's wisdom for living. Now, wisdom is this sacred intersection, Christian wisdom, is sacred intersection between the knowledge of truth of God and the experience of living it out. So I'm taking what I believe, right, in my head and my heart, and it's coming out in my hands and my words. In other words, doctrine, what I believe, is coming out in ethic. And the two are connected together. And so James is giving a letter, Proverbs, about how you take what you believe about Jesus. He's writing to a group of people who have found Jesus as Savior and Lord and now are trying to follow Jesus in every area of their life, which is a lifelong journey, isn't it? in our marriages, in our relationships, in our business dealings, in our thinking, our, you know, in our behavior, all of it, trying to follow Jesus and, and living more in accord with the gospel. And so James, again, if you're just coming in our study, is writing to a group of people who have found and are following Jesus and giving them wisdom about how to take the truth of who they know Jesus to be and live it out in a real broken world. And so we come to verses 11 and 12 in our study today in chapter four. And these are these are hard-hitting words, aren't they? Let, let me read verse 11 again to you. James says, don't speak evil against each other. Dear brothers and sisters, this is a phrase, dear brothers and sisters, that repeats over and over and over again throughout the letter. It's his way of saying, hey, we're on this journey together following Jesus. It literally means my fellow Christians, my fellow pilgrims on our journey of finding and following Jesus. That's literally what it means. So he was reminding them, I'm on the journey with you. I'm not at the finish line yelling back at you. I'm right here with you. And he says, don't speak evil against one another. Then he says, if you criticize and you judge each other, then you're criticizing and judging God's law. We'll come back to what that means. And then he clarifies job description. Your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you or not. Okay, so James says, when we're speaking evil and we're slandering other people or we're judging other people, right? We're not living according to the gospel, the true story. And I wanna put this into context, historical context. This is very important. Context is always important in the scriptures. What is actually happening? These are a group of believers. This is the church. These are people who are, uh, who are following Jesus, right? And they're wanting to know how to live out their faith in a real world full of real problems. That's what the whole book is about. But specifically in historical context, these are a group of people that have been dispersed from Jerusalem 
from their lunchroom table, if you will, with other Jews who grew up just like them in Jerusalem, who would go to the temple and pray three times a day and only eat certain types of food and who were culturally and ethnically the same, right? So he's saying now that you're living, they've been dispelled from Jerusalem. Now you're living outside Jerusalem and you're living with people who were outsiders, Gentiles, who don't have the same customs that you have, who, who think differently, who act differently, who eat differently. And he says, I want you to be careful about the way that you're speaking to those people at the, at the lunchroom table because they are different than you. And he reminds them of this truth that we've seen all throughout the book of James. Everybody watch this. That your words, what? Your words build worlds. Your words build worlds. And you go, where are you getting that from? In the beginning, God created with a spoken word. John reminds us in John 1 that nothing in creation was made without Jesus, that all of it came through his spoken word. And he is known as the word made flesh. So at a, at a high biblical level, we see that the word made flesh, Jesus himself, the word, spoke creation into existence. And now in a miniature way, our words begin to speak and to build worlds all around us. So when you look at your world, specifically your relational world, those people that are in your family, your friendships, your coworkers, your words are building a world around you. And James says, you wanna be sure that you're building the right world, a world that's built on the kingdom of God and God's principles and not the enemy's words. The truth is that words build worlds and words are a window into our soul of what we're actually believing about God and ourselves and other people. And so let's look at verse 11 here. He says, to speak against one another is to speak against the law. What in the world does that mean? Well, in chapter two, James reminds us of his big brother, Jesus, that when Jesus summarized the law, known as the great commandment, he summarized it this way. He said, all the law and the prophets can be summarized this way. Love, love what? Love the Lord your God, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, love God holistically with everything that he's given to you, your intellect, your emotion, your, your energy, your, um, your spirituality, all of it, all of it together, you're loving God and turning your affections toward him. And, and what else did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what else? Love your neighbor as who? As yourself, three loves there. Love for God, love for neighbor, love for self. That, that third one oftentimes gets forgotten. That God actually wants you to know that you were created in his image and not in an arrogant way or a self-absorbed type of love, but be, learning to love yourself as God made you, your true self and the story that he's writing in your life and, and learning out of that story, right? To begin to love other people in the same way. Love God, Love yourself as you love, or love other people as you love yourself. That's how Jesus summarized all this. And James calls it the royal law. Why does James call it the royal law in James 2? Because it's King Jesus who's saying, let me just summarize, let me just keep it really simple for you guys. Love God and love other people as you love yourself. This is the fulfillment of the law. And so what James is saying here is when you slander one another, when you criticize one another, when you judge one another, right? You're criticizing the law. What law? The law of love. 
to love God and other people as you love yourself. And you're putting yourself in the seat of the judge, of God himself when you do that. You're basically saying, the law doesn't apply to me. And you say, well, what about judging other people? Because this is a, a big thing in our culture. I don't know if you've heard this or not. Someone say, you can't judge me. You can't judge me. Is that true or not true? Well, it's complicated. Because for those of us who are Christians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that we're rightly, as followers of Jesus in the household of faith, meant to judge one another's behavior to bring each other back into accord with Christ. So in other words, if I see one of you this week at a Bank of America robbing the bank or whatever bank of choice, and I just walk by and say, I'll see you Sunday. I hope, hope you're enjoying the James series as you're walking out with a bag of money. I, I'm not actually doing you any good, right? And, and, and it's not judging you to say you shouldn't be robbing a bank. And we could play that out in a lot of different ways. What James is saying here is that it's not about judging other Christians into behavior that, that reflects the glory of Christ and who he's called you to. It's about judging other people salvifically to heaven or to hell. And how do I know this? Well, look at verse 12. He says, it's God's job as judge, capital J, to save or to what? Destroy. And this is the essence of salvation, heaven or hell. And he corrects the, the Christians to say, look, it's not your job with insiders or with, especially with your neighbor, the word that he uses in verse 12, with outsiders, people who are not followers of Jesus, to sit in the seat of judgment over them and to condemn them to hell or to say, hey, you're saved. That's not your job. And when you do that, you're basically saying that the law of Christ, the royal law to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as you love yourself, you're saying it doesn't apply to me that I'm above all that. You're saying basically, I know better, God. I know this person better than you do. I know their story. And, and I know whether they deserve to be in heaven or hell. And I'm putting myself in the seat of judgment. And so we reject, listen to this, we reject God's way when we do what James warns against here, slandering, criticizing, judging other people. We reject God's way, and worse, we appoint ourselves into the place that only God belongs. And you've heard me say before, the throne of God that Jesus is sitting on today is not a two-seater. You're not allowed to be on there with him. It's his alone. But when we begin to criticize other people and specifically judge people in a salvific way, we're trying to sit on the seat that only God belongs in. Here's the bottom line. I'm going to give it right now that how we treat others is a direct reflection of how we see God. How we treat other people is a window. It's a direct reflection of how we see God. And moreover, how we treat ourselves is a direct reflection of how we see God. More on that in a moment. But here's the reality, guys. People are not problems to be solved. People are not problems to be solved. Now you think about people in your life right now and you go, no, well, I beg to differ, right? I got a lot of problems and they have a lot of names and personalities and faces and I'm thinking about them right now. Don't get me wrong. There are a lot of problems in this world. 
a lot of problems. You've heard me say before, sin is really stupid and simple. The consequences of sin are very complex. Very, very complex. And people are very complex. And when we put people in a category that they're just a problem to be solved, we're getting closer and closer to getting on the throne and becoming the judge over their lives. Uh, Eugene Peterson said it this way, if you want to um, take a picture of this or just copy it down. I think it's in the notes if you, if you follow along in the app. People are not problems to be solved. They are mysteries to be discovered. You are a holy mystery to be discovered. This is why the journey into your story, past, present, and yes, even in the future of how God made you, how he wired you, your temperament, your personality, your experiences, your woundedness, the way that people have wounded you, the way that you've wounded other people. This is all a part of what it means to be you. And it's something to continue to be discovered. And it's not selfish to understand more of your story. It's actually the most loving thing you can do in relationship to other people and how you show up. But when we treat people or we categorize people, and I know all of us are thinking about some people right now, they're flashing across your, your mind right now. When we categorize people as a problem, we've missed the holy mystery that they are created by God. And typically what you're seeing behaviorally or in words from other people are just the tip of the iceberg for what's really down in their heart and their soul. And, and few of us, with even the people that we love the most, journey and are patient in the process of, of understanding people, of understanding their stories, of, of how they got to be where they are and, and why they think the way that they do. And this is, this is all discipleship, guys. It's all about finding Jesus and passionately following after him in every part of our, our hearts. Like Jesus said, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Believe me, that's a very congruent statement in terms of your story and who you are. Here, here's another way to think about it. And this one I, hits me. People are not projects to be completed, right? They are stories to be stewarded. People are not projects to be completed, they're stories to be stewarded. And ultimately, I am not the finisher, the author, even of my own story, and certainly not of your story. There is an author of your story. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, verse two, Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. The word perfecter in Greek means the finisher. Jesus is writing the story. It's my job to come alongside and to discover that. There's a mystery here to, un to understand. But when we reject, like when we reject people and we judge people and we slander people, we're cutting to the, to the end because we want to finish the narrative always with people. And we're drawing a hard and fast conclusion and we're writing people off or we're judging them in different ways and we're not sitting and understanding the complexity that are people. You've heard me say this before, right? There are no simple stories, Right? There's, the people are complex. You are complex and very layered. And if we, if, we, if we accept simple stories about ourselves or other people, we're missing the mystery that is a person. And we're missing the mystery that is the work of Christ in their hearts and writing their story and continuing to perfect their story and finish their story. Maybe this will um, cement it for you. This is the headstone of Ruth Bell Graham that sits right here in Charlotte. And some of you have been there and you've seen this. I don't know if you paid attention to the, the little line underneath. It says, end of construction, 
Thank you for your patience. Isn't that beautiful? She got it. Like, like we're all in process. There, there, there is no completion of the story until we go to be with Jesus or until he returns. And so I'm in process, you're in process. We're on a journey following Jesus. And when we show up and we try to complete everybody's, you know, I want you to be this for me or I want to be this, then we're cutting to the end of the story and we're sitting in the seat that only God can sit in, the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. So if, here's a couple of questions to ask in relationship in light of our passage, James 4, 11 and 12. How do you see yourself in other people's story? Like what role do you play? How do you show up in relationship for people that are closest to you, your family, your friends, your coworkers, how do you show up in their story? Do you show up as one who's critiquing or I've got a wonderful plan for your life and I'd love to tell you about it and let's just cut to the finish here. Do I show up as a participant in the story that God's writing? How do I show up? The truth is when I don't know my role, I want you to sit with that question. How do I show up in the stories of other people in my life? And how do you show up in your own story, by the way? And the truth is when you don't know your role and how you show up with people, it's easy to confuse your role with God's role. Why? Well, the ultimate temptation biblically is to be like God. The original temptation to Adam and Eve was to become like God. And when we're believing a false story about ourselves and about God, then we slip back in that temptation and we want to become God in other people's lives. And what is God's role? To be the author and the perfecter of our faith. So what do I want to do? I want to be the author and the perfecter of your life. And this happens especially with the people that we're closest with and that we love the most. We want something so badly for them, right? And so we think we know best and we begin to slip into this role that only God can play. Let, let, me, let me say it a different way. Tim Keller uh, talks about this in a beautiful way in his work, The Meaning of Marriage. If you're looking for a, a book to read maybe this summer um, in your married life, that's one I would recommend, The Meaning of Marriage. And, and here's what I'd say is, you know, th- what he talks about in the book applies to, to, to almost all of our relationships. So if you're not married in here today, you're watching online, the principles that he's given apply to all of our relationships, especially the ones that we're closest to. And he says, there's there's basically two views on on relationship. There's one that's kind of the, Keller says, the the Jerry Maguire view, which is, you know, for those of you or a certain age bracket, you remember that blockbuster hit. And you remember the, 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 the pinnacle of, this, of the movie is this scene between Jerry and his love interest where he says, you complete me. And Keller says, if that's your orientation to people's stories, especially the people that are closest to you, your friends, your family, your coworkers, that somehow they're meant to complete you, the author and the perfecter of you, you've missed it. And now all of a sudden I'm dependent on someone else who's in process to complete me. And I put the weight of worship on them and it crushes them because they're not God and they can't handle the weight of your worship of them and your need for them to complete you. Instead, Keller says in primary relationships, it should be more like Michelangelo, that when he's sculpting uh, David, And he's asked, how in the world did you do this? Like, what was your process? 
how did you show up every day in sculpting this masterpiece? And he says, oh, it, it was simple. Well, for him maybe. But he says, here's how I showed up. I just eliminated everything that wasn't David. And Keller says, that, that is the way you show up in relationship. That you trust that the Lord has a picture of what he has created this person for and what he's called them to. And now my job is to participate, like back to that question, how do I show up in relationships? My job is to show up as a participant with God and helping shape and form this person into a masterpiece. Ephesians 2.10, you are God's workmanship, his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared in advance for you. So I'm just, I'm participating with God in eliminating everything that is not truly you. Now, I'm going to be vulnerable here for a moment in front of you. you know, one of my like personal visions for my life, and this is a work that is still in progress, okay? But something that I've wrestled with the last few years is like, what is my purpose? Like, what is my ultimate vision? And the little statement that I've come up with, with the help of a lot of mentors and friends, is to be my true self fully alive. To be my true self fully alive. Unless you think that is like this kind of weird, like kind of maybe new agey secular thing. Let me just root this in the scriptures. When Jesus said in John 10, 10, the enemy came to still kill and destroy you, but I came that you might have life and might have it to the fullest. And I believe that's personal for each of us. When Jesus said, I came that you, your true self, as God made you and created you and called you to be, you fully alive in every relationship and place and space that God calls you to. To be your true self, in other words, to know the true story of who you are and to be fully alive in that story as God created and called you to be in every relationship. What would that feel like and look like to show up as Jesus did saying, I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. Do you remember that? Jesus said that. In other words, I know my story. I know who God created me to be, and I know how to show up in a non-anxious way, God-defined and not needing to be defined by you, and not needing to be completed by you, but knowing that I'm complete in Jesus, and now I can show up rightly in relationships, not slandering or criticizing or judging, because the reality is the heart of James 4:11 is that I don't understand my identity and story. And because I don't know my story, my true story, who I truly am, I can't be fully alive in my relationships. And I, I know I'm stepping on some toes, but I'm doing it because I love you. And so many of you are hiding behind a mask of who you think you're supposed to be or how you need to show up tomorrow at work or how you need to show up for people in your life or, 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 or defined by some sort of hurt or hang up in your past and you're not living in the true story that God called you to. And therefore you cannot be fully alive because you're not living in the truth of who God really made you to be. And I just wanna, I wanna end here by talking about the identity crisis that is James 4, 11 and 12. Because I want you to go back and look at this this week. 
And really what this is, is James saying, you've got an identity crisis. And a lot of people go through their life in different stages and and go through different identity crises. Like, Like middle school is an identity crisis. But the truth is when we get to middle age, we have an identity crisis where a lot of times we're moving from success to significance. And then as we get older, we have an identity crisis. How do I show up now in relationship to my children and my grandchildren? And when I'm not working full time, like who am I without my work? And the truth is that we're constantly showing up to middle school tables and asking the question, who am I? And how do I relate to other people? And God has something to say about that, friends, about who you are and how you show up. And so in verse 12, just to remind you, he says, God alone gave the law, right? And he's the capital J judge. He's the one that has the power to save or destroy salvation. So what right do you have to sit in God's seat and to judge other people? Basically what James is saying is you have an identity crisis and you haven't yet settled your own story before the Lord. And because you haven't settled your story before God and your identity in Christ, now you're projecting that on everybody else around you because you need something for them or you need them to be something for you. So I just want to read my notes because I, I want to say this in the way the Lord gave it to us. And I just, I just am asking you for the next minute or two to just listen to this. Our identity crisis is exposed when we open our mouths with critical, judgmental speech against others in our relational world. Our relational world in the New Testament is a word called oikos. The people in primary relationship with us. When we openly disparage other people, we uncover the truth that we don't yet correctly understand who we are and that we're not the ultimate authority in our life or in our world. Remember that every time we open our mouths, we're echoing the words of heaven or hell. Words of condemnation, judgment, criticism, slander, like James is saying here, are not from the father of light. Rather, they're emanating from the prince of darkness. The lion who lurks about wanting to devour people who were made in the image of God. By the way, there's the words of Peter who struggled at the middle school table to treat people rightly and now is writing about our orientation to God and other people and reminding us that we have an enemy that wants to still kill and destroy, that is a lion lurking, ready to devour our hearts and devour other people with our words. So our critical judgmental talk not only reveals that we don't know who we are, but also that we don't understand who other people are, that they're made in the image of God that they're beautiful, that they matter, that God created them and is calling them through Christ to himself. I want you to hear this. When we're confused about our identity and we're confused about the identity of others, we are ultimately confused about authority and where authority comes from. We live in a world that is desperately confused about our story and our identity. And ultimately, the confusion and chaos of identity is confusion and chaos about authority. About who created us and made us and who calls us to himself in story. 
And so the scriptures are clear that God alone, King Jesus, is judge. And that means he is the one who determines right from wrong, what is valuable and important in the world. Now I'm finishing right here. In the first five books of the Old Testament, they're the foundational books of the Old Testament. They're known as the Torah, the Pentateuch, the five books of the law. And God begins to explain to his people and to us how he relates to them and how they're meant to relate to him. Our story as God's people. And God gives a law not to work our way to God. Go back and read it. God gives the law to keep free people free. To keep loved people in our loving relationship with God and other people. And everything that Jesus is saying about how all of the Torah is summarized is about loving God rightly and loving other people rightly. So when we get to a passage like this that talks about judging other people or being cynical or slandering other people, we can easily dismiss it as another behavior modification thing for Christianity. Just be nicer. Just be a good little girl. Be a good little boy. But it's so much deeper. It actually takes us into our story and the story that we believe about God and ourselves and other people. And what Jesus says is the law is love. You want to know what the mark of Christian maturity is? You don't need to raise your hand. How many of you want to be more mature in your relationship with Christ and following Jesus next year than you are right now? How many of you want to be even more in five years, in 10 years? What do you want to be said on your tombstone about your life? What do do you want your friends and your family, the people in your relational world to say about you? The mark of Christian maturity is love. Our capacity to love God more and love other people more. In other words, the mark of Christian maturity is to know my true self, the story of God as he's created in my heart, who he's called me to be right? And to show up fully alive in relationship to other people. I came that you might have life and have it to the fullest. Not to do whatever you want to do, but to be your true self as I've called you and created you to be. And to show up in every relationship fully alive in the story of the gospel in your own heart. Don't you see that all of these conversations that James is having with his congregation about how they relate to one another, the, the horizontal relationships, have everything to do with the vertical relationship. And if this isn't settled in your heart, then these will never be right. Tolerance in our culture and the story of our world is a cheap substitute for forgiveness and unity. And you could go on and on and on. The cheap story of the world and the substitute for the true story of the gospel, right? Uh, You know, just getting along with each other or putting up with other people is no substitute for the true story of living in unity with one another in Christ. And in that way, diversity doesn't become a division, whether it's between Jews and Gentiles or whatever the category is, which we find all kinds of ways to categorize people. And it doesn't become about that. Diversity actually becomes something beautiful in the kingdom of God to be celebrated because God created people in his image. And now I can celebrate that in the story of God in your life because I know my story and I don't need something from you to complete my story or I don't need you to be something for that to happen. I'll finish here. A.W. Tozer is a great theologian. 
And he asked this really provocative question. I think it's appropriate in the way we finish here with James 4, 11 and 12. Tozer said, I want you to think about the first thought you have when you think about God. So let's just do that. Right here in the room for those of you watching online. What is the first thought you think of when you think about God? And Tozer said, whatever pops in your mind and your heart in this moment, because the truth is I could ask you in five minutes and it might be something else. Whatever comes up in your heart and your mind, what you're believing about God is the most important thing in your life. Why does Tozer say this? Because how you understand God, your vertical relationship with God, the story that you're believing about God is ultimately the story that you're believing about yourself. And the story that you're believing about yourself plays out in every story and relationship around you. So back to the middle school lunchroom table. If I show up to the lunchroom table, whatever that might be in your life right now, and I'm not secure in my story, if I don't understand the truth of the gospel of who God created me to be, and that God has called me to follow him and experience true life and life to the fullest, that I'm constantly showing up and colliding with other people around me and their stories because I need something from you to complete me or I need you to be something to complete me. And that is not the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is that God has done for you what you could not and would not do for yourself. And the judge sent his son to come and to pay the penalty for you. And not only that, but then he turned around and invited you to be a part of his forever family as a son or a daughter of the Most High King. That is your identity. How would that change the way you show up in every one one of your relationships? How would your identity as a son or a daughter of the most high God, saved not by your works or your behavior, but through the gospel, change the way you show up? That, dear friends, is what James is writing to us about. To Christ be the glory today. Let's pray together. Hear the passage one more time. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and you judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you or not. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor. God, would you give us the wisdom to know what you're speaking to us today in the depths of our heart and our story. Give us wisdom to know what you're speaking to us today. And would you give us the courage now to take the next step closer to you and one another that you're calling us to. And we'll give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name.